Let's pray and then we'll jump into the, this morning's text. Father, we lay ourselves at Your feet. Lord, we confess that we are the dust of the earth. And Lord, that it takes the breath of life that You blow into us to give us spiritual life. Father, would You give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear. Would You circumcise, Lord, our heart. Would You open us up to what You have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. We are in the On the Road series. We're going to look in Genesis 32 in just a minute. But by way of introduction on the theme, go back in history a little bit, uh, or actually go forward, sorry, into Exodus 14 for a minute. The Exodus story is interesting. There's all kinds of compelling elements to that story. But isn't it interesting that Israel sees all these mighty works or miracles of God by which He delivers them out of Egypt, it's the strongest, most powerful nation on the earth in the day. Pharaoh's the most powerful man on the earth in that day. It was very intentional that God chose Egypt to interact with in this story. But Israel's seen all the miracles and, and the last, remember the death of the firstborn. So if you didn't have the blood smeared around the door of your home, the firstborn of your family died that night. And that was the final straw for Pharaoh in Egypt. And so they expelled Israel as God said they would. But Israel hadn't gone very far before they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. That is to say, they're going across the desert. They hit the Red Sea. Now that's probably not a big deal because they can go around. That's okay. But then they realize that Pharaoh has hardened his heart that last time as God said he would. So Israel, a million and a half or so we conjecture, people in front of the Red Sea, they cannot pass the sea. And now they look behind and Pharaoh's armies, the armies of Egypt, the chariots of Egypt are now closing in on them from behind. Now, what do you do when that happens? What do we do when that happens? Have you guys ever seen God at work in your life in the past? And then a new emergency arises and it's as if He never acted in your life before. It's like you replay the tapes all over again. Is there a God? Where is He? If He loves me, why did He let this happen? So there's Israel between a rock and a hard place. And what are they doing? Do you remember? There's a key term in Exodus and they're grumbling. They're complaining against Moses. And they say, Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt for you to bring us out here to die now? And do you remember what Moses says in reply? He says, guys, listen. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. And the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. They thought there was a mistake. They get there to the Red Sea. They're going along. They think they're in God's will one moment. And the sea's there in front of them. Well, that's okay. We'll just go around. But then the army comes up behind them and now they're not so sure. We thought we were in God's will. We're going along. Everything's swimming. This is great. Now we're complaining. You know, the truth was they were exactly where God wanted them, weren't they? They were in God's will. When they got trapped, that was God's will. And they're complaining. And, and God says, guys, listen... Just stand still. There's nothing you can do about this situation. You can't get across this river and you can't defeat this army. So let's just face it. You're impotent in the situation you find yourself now. There's nothing you can do and that's okay. Are we good guys? Okay. So Moses says, all I want you to do is stand still because God's got this. God's got it. You stand still. You'll see God come through. 
And isn't that the case? In fact, I know many of the stories in this church right now, I know there's families right here, there's individuals right now that are between a rock and a hard place. And I can just say, on the confidence of God's Word, God says, stand still and see what I do. Don't work up all your clever schemes. Don't you figure out how you can get around what you can't get around. Don't fret and complain. You stand still and see the salvation of God. No mistake, exactly where God wanted them. If you've got a Bible, turn back to Genesis 32. And just to set this up, if you remember in the story of Jacob, we looked at Jacob's ladder last time and the ways in which that was a picture of Christ. Went to John 1. In that story, Jacob had tricked Father Isaac to get a blessing. And then he was headed out of the land of promise and he got to a place called Luz where he saw that ladder and he saw God and he saw angels and God spoke to him. And he said, this isn't Luz, this is Bethel, this is God's house. So then he goes off to Nahor and Bethuel's families and he finds himself a wife and he labors up there around Haran for about 20 years. And God appears to him in a dream and says, it's time for you to go back. And so he sneaks, he tricks Uncle Laban, leaves without telling him, goes back. There's, Laban catches up. There's another past the trickery. Laban ends up blessing him just like Isaac had. And he's coming back into the land of promise now. And he sees angels again. And he sees God again. And God speaks to him again, coming and going. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 32 now. As Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim, or two camps, two companies. Then Jacob, by the way, he's on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's approaching a river called the Jabbok. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. That's down in the south near the Dead Sea. He also commanded them saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Do you, do you remember that when Jacob tricked Isaac, he took what Esau thought he was going to get, and Esau was not happy. He was murderously mad, so that when Jacob left, he's fleeing his brother. Now, he's got the blessing. God's told him, you've got the covenant too. And yet, look at his language. Say to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. Was that God's language for Jacob? It wasn't, because God had said to his mother, the older will serve the younger. But he's afraid, isn't he? And he tells Esau through these messengers, I've got all this stuff. That's to say, hey, the stuff from dad, don't worry about it. Whatever you've got, you can have it all. I'm okay. His fear is coming out here. He's trying to manage the situation. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Now, 400 men to us might not sound like a lot, but in those times, this was an army. And Jacob knows I'm between a rock and a hard place. I've got an army in front of me and I've got wilderness behind. And if Esau wants to hurt me, there's absolutely nothing I can do. 
Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. That's his escape plan. Maybe he'll get some of us. Maybe some of us can escape. And when afraid, Jacob turns to prayer. That's a good thing. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. With my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now, this is a good prayer. Jacob is reminding God of God's promises. And when you and I pray, this is a great model. We're reminding God what he's promised us, what he said, what he's committed himself to. That's great. Verse 13, so Jacob spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their colts. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Now, of course, Again, a clever trick, isn't it? This is a hope to bribe Esau, right? To assuage his anger if he's still ticked. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he rose that same night and took his two wives, his two maids, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, the man, he touched, the man touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, the man said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He, the man, said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Remember, Jacob means supplanter. Israel, your Bible may have different notes on this, but it means struggles and God. Probably the best understanding here is that 
um, not that Jacob is the wrestler, but that God rules over Jacob. Jacob was the supplanter. God rules now. Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, which means to see God's face. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. The sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. So Jacob changes the name of this place also. Luz became Bethel. Jabbok became Peniel. Uh, Jacob on your teaching insert there, Jacob is a deceiver and a double-minded man. And you see that throughout this story, just as you've seen it throughout his life. On one hand, he's doing exactly what we are called to do. We're between a rock and a hard place, between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army or whatever the struggle is we find ourselves in. He's praying to God. And he's praying according to God's character and God's promises. That's great. That's absolutely appropriate. While he's doing that on one hand, though, on the other hand, he's doing everything his mind can imagine, every plan, just like he's done all his life. What clever idea can I come up with to get myself out of this situation? How can I save myself from the Red Sea, in other words? And the truth is, at this point in his life, God's just not going to have it. And that's why Jacob's here in the first place. In verse 30, when it says, the man, this is interesting, if you read a story and something seems to stick out and be odd, that probably means God's getting our attention. There's probably a reason for that. So this man is not introduced. This, it doesn't come up. Where, who is this guy? Where did he come from? We only learn later when Jacob tells us who this man was. We know that this was God Himself. This was the second person of the Trinity. That's why God says, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. So if... Jacob didn't say that, we wouldn't know. It's a man, it's a strange story, and who is it that's rustling with him all night? But Jacob tells us, no, I've seen God face to face. You remember, he'd seen Him before. He'd seen Him at Bethel. And now he sees Him again at Jabbok, this place that becomes Peniel. I've seen God face to face. So the man is not a mere man. It's God Himself. It's God the Son appearing to Jacob, wrestling with Him through the night. If you look at verse 26, Jacob says to the man, to God, he says, I won't let you go. The man says, let me go, it's day's breaking, it's time for me to go. Jacob says, not happening until you bless me. Now, if we read the story, we might think that Jacob has the upper hand and the guy can't get away. And so Jacob is making a demand on God, on the man that he's wrestling with. I won't let you go until you bless me. But it's not so much I won't let you go, I can't bear to let you go is more the theme. In Hosea 12, God's talking to the nation of Israel and He comes back to this passage. And He's sort of using Jacob's life and story as a mirror of what's going on in Israel in the day. And when He talks about this incident through Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4, it says, in the womb, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel. In his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel. I'll come back to that in just a second. And prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. This thing Jacob saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. Jacob is weeping. He's in tears. And he's desperate. 
He's begging. He's pleading. He's essentially saying, I can't afford for you to leave without blessing me. I'm in trouble, and if you do, don't do something for me, I am stuck. I need you. I've got to have you. I've got to have your blessing. He's tricked for blessings before, but he can't trick his way into this one. And there's no sense that we think Jacob wins here, right? Because all God does is touch his thigh and it's dislocated, right? Jacob knows, I can't get around this thing. I've got to have your blessing. I've got no place else to go. God is wrestling with Jacob to bring him to an end of himself. And the man asked, God asked Jacob, what's your name? This is interesting. Why would, why would he ask him his name here? Why would that matter? Why would that be telling? Uh, you know, in the Bible, generally the name describes the person, doesn't it? It tells us something about our character or our destiny. So, God says, what's your name? Who are you? So when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, it's a bit of a confession, isn't it? I'm a deceiver. I'm a trickster. I have lived by my wits all my life. That's who I am, and it's what I do. God elicits this confession from him just by saying, what's your name? Who are you? And Jacob fesses up. That's me. That's my name, and that's who, and that's what I am. Now, you read this story and God wrestling with Jacob is kind of weird. Why? You know, just like the Red Sea, why lead them out and corner them here? Why is, why is God taking on human form for a while to become this divine wrestler with Jacob? What's, what's going on? Back to Jacob's name and back to Jacob's life. Since his birth, Jacob had been living by his wits, deceiving others, and of course, in turn, being deceived. And by the way, you know, Galatians 6 says what you, you sow and then you reap what you've sown. And just as Jacob deceived others, he was deceived himself, wasn't he? By Laban repeatedly. Living by deception and receiving deception. Jacob swindled Esau with some stew in order to get his birthright. Esau's birthright. He lied. He deceived Isaac in order to gain the paternal blessing. He manipulated the breeding of sheep and goats in order to accumulate wealth from Laban's herds. And then he deceived Laban by leaving secretly in order to return to the land of promise. He didn't tell Laban he was leaving. God had told him to leave. That was fine. But he tricked Laban by not telling him. But go back in Jacob's story and consider those elements again. God had ordained from before their birth that Jacob would be blessed over Esau. Jacob didn't gain blessing or supremacy by what he did. He already had it by God's decree. He didn't gain anything there. God had given the covenant and promise to Jacob at Bethel of blessing land and children. That was from God to Jacob. He couldn't gain that either. That was sovereignly given from God to Jacob. You couldn't win that. You could ask for it, but that didn't mean God would give it. God said, I'm giving you this. God promised to keep and attend Jacob and to bring him back to the land of promise safely. Jacob's traveling on God's promise. He said, I'll bring you back here safely. And on top of that, he's got a camp of angels around him here. 
He's got a divine, if you will, army that should have told him, I'm okay, God's with me. He's keeping His promise. God was surrounding Jacob with that host of angels in order to guide and protect him. So if you say at the end of the day, what did Jacob gain by his life of self-reliance and deception, living life on his own terms? What did he gain? He didn't gain anything. He didn't get anything more than he would have otherwise. Everything he got, God was already determined to bless him with. So with his deception and living by his wits, he just got fearfulness and anxiety. He got bad relationships with other people. He didn't gain anything through this habit of living by his wits, depending on himself and his own resources. Gained him absolutely nothing that God wasn't already giving him. Now, it's in this wrestling exercise that God changes Jacob's name and he becomes Israel or God rules. Jacob means I'm ruling my life. I'm calling the shots on my own. I'm doing whatever I can by any means I can to gain what I want. Israel means God rules. And that's the difference between a life of self-dependence and a life of faith. If you ask yourself today, who do I think is calling the shots in my life? If I think I control my life, I'm with Jacob. And I'm still living life like Jacob, not Israel. Not a life of faith. And God means to bring Jacob to this point of crises. To change his life and change his name and say, Jacob, you're not going to live by your wits any longer. I'm requiring a change in your life by which you trust me and live a life characterized by faith. And that's why he changes his name. The text can imply that Jacob wins. You've, you've struggled with men and with God. And you've won. But you've got to qualify what success or winning there looks like. Jacob loses the fight. God just touches him and he's, he's done. Jacob loses the fight, but it's in losing that he actually wins because losing means I'm done living life on my terms. Losing means I recognize that God rules in my affairs. I don't. So Jacob loses, but because he loses, he actually wins. He succeeds because he's now living under God and God's rule. Most of us, uh, do you see yourself in the text when you talk about either Israel at the Dead Sea, at the Red Sea, or when Jacob's facing problems? Uh, you know, when I read these stories, I see myself, you know, the ways in which I'm trying to live life on my own, on my own terms. I've been struck. Jacob had a very particular set of promises, and they were pretty concrete. God said, I'll give you kids, lots of them. I'll give you land, too. And blessing basically meant a life characterized by peace. Perhaps we could say relative, but some concrete promises. They're land you can walk on, you know, children you can see and interact with. <clears throat> the truth is, though, for Christians... We have more promises and we have more profoundly important, far-reaching promises than Jacob ever had. But sometimes because they're a little harder to lay hold of specifically, we're not sure what that looks like, we forget their value and so we tend to think and live like Jacob on our own, by our own wits, by what we can pull off. Let me give you just a few examples. In Hebrews 13.5, Jesus says, Jesus says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will never leave you 
I will never forsake you. Or if you go to Matthew 28, a passage many of us have by memory, um, I'll be with you always even till the end of the age. I'll be with you always even to the end of the age. How many times do we find ourselves praying, Lord, please be with us. Lord, please be with me. Lord, please be with us. Can God not be with us? He can't not be with us. A God who can't lie says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When we're feeling lonely or alone or estranged, are we ever truly alone? If you're a Christian, you can't get there. You cannot get alone. Wouldn't it be better to say, God, thank you for your promise, and I know you're here. God, thank you for your promise always to be with us. We count on it now. That would be a prayer like Jacob's godly prayer. You've made a promise, God. I count on it. God, please be with us. What's with that? It's as if God hasn't spoken and hasn't promised. So we say and said, no, God, thank you for your promise. We count on it. Uh, God tells us not to fear other people, even to the point of death. Matthew 10, 28. You remember Jesus says in the Gospels, don't fear those who can what? All they can do is kill you. But Jesus says, well, that's actually not that big a deal eternally if someone can kill you. By the way, how many here are going to die? Yeah. I mean, if the rapture comes first, we're going up. I'm good with that. Good with that too. But if the rapture doesn't come first, we're, we're going to die. So if we die a little sooner or a little later, is that a big deal in the scale of eternity? And that's what Jesus says. Look, the worst they can do to you is kill you. But... But God can do much more than that, actually. God can consign you to hell. So he says, don't fear men. All they can do is kill you. But God has the power over your eternal destiny. He's the one to fear, to live in reverence of, to take your cues from God, not men. 1 Peter 3.14, Peter says, don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. The verse that follows is the one about sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts and being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. But if someone calls you on the carpet because of your faith in Christ, God says through Peter, don't fear their intimidation. They're just men. They're just like you. They're going to die. Their life, it's in their breath. If you held their nose for four minutes, they'd be dead. Why would you fear that person? Don't fear men. Revelation 2.10, Jesus told a group, don't fear what you're about to suffer, death. Be, fear, be faithful to death and gain the crown of life. The truth is most of us live in dread of our own shadows and we certainly live in terror of the ill opinion of others, don't we? You know, in contrast to that in the Gospels also, Jesus said, rejoice when other men speak ill of you. If it's about Christ and they speak ill of you, that's just fine, Jesus says. Rejoice over that. Because that's what they did to Jesus too. If you're being castigated because you belong to Christ, you're in the right company. That's okay. Don't worry about that. Also, God has promised to provide for the things we need. Just thinking of Philippians 4.19. You know, my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches. Does God have a supply problem? No. You know, owns all the universe, the cattle on a thousand hills, whatever we need, God has. Yet how many of us live in anxiety about how we'll pay bills or where we will live or repair or replace a vehicle or 
medical bills or whatever, if the omnipotent God of all the universe says, I've got this covered, why would we live in fear? But you see, we're doing just what Jacob did, aren't we? Typically, the promises are there. And sometimes we pray according to the promise, but more often than not, we live as if God has not spoken. Just like Jacob. And so what's God often up to in your life and mine? He's often bringing us to the Red Sea. And He's often bringing us to Jabbok. Why? Because He wants to bring us to an end of ourself, an end of self-reliance, which He can't use our efforts anyway, to begin living a life of faith. Just like Jacob did. The truth is we see Christ most clearly when we value His presence most fully. And that's almost always in moments of need. That's the hard lesson, but that is the truth. God talks about trusting in ourself or in Him. There's a classic passage in Jeremiah 17 that says this. One of the most important passages actually in the Bible on who you trust. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, we're told, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. You're cursed, you're not blessed if you're ultimately dependent on your own abilities or on someone else's for your issues in life. You're not blessed, you're hampered, you're compromised if our outlook on life is to trust in our own strength or the strength of others. In verse 7 we read, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. That's the life of faith. You'll be blessed if you live a life typified by trust or faith in God. Think of all the fear and the anxiety we would be free of if we trusted God when the things that are bigger than us, stronger than us, the things we can't control, if when they come into our life, if we say, Lord, we trust you for this, we're going to stand still to see how you're going to deliver. Wouldn't that be great? Would that be a different kind of life? I think it would for most of us. Verse 14 in Jeremiah 17 says it this way, and I love this. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. If God heals me, I'm good to go. If God saves me, it's complete. If I save myself, it's really iffy. It's thin, thin ice. But if God saves me, if He heals me, if He delivers me, it's going to work. In Psalm 60, you see that same theme again. Give us help against the adversary. This is a plea to God. Deliverance by man is vain. It's through God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our adversaries. God's the one we're supposed to rely on. Paul learned this in spades. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. I'll just mention briefly. But you remember, Paul was given by God. God. Paul was allowed to have a demon that somehow abused him. Some people think it was an eye condition, a physical condition. It was tough for Paul to live with. And he prays. He says three times, God, would you please take this thing away from me? But God says to Paul, I'm actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave you at this point of crisis because I want you to know, Paul, that, that my power is perfected in your weakness. So Paul's conclusion is, so that means that if I'm weak, I actually have God's strength at work on my behalf. 
So he comes to the conclusion, I will boast, therefore, not in my strengths, but in my weaknesses. When I'm confronted with issues or people or elements of life that I can't control and I can't get around and I can't save myself from, I say, that's okay. In my weakness, God engages. In my weakness, God is strong. And that's the life of faith. You know, the problem for most of us is not, we might say, I, I feel weak. I, Lord, I just need more strength. And that, that is the problem. The truth is we don't need more strength. And we're, it's not that we're not strong enough. God says, actually, in fact, you have no strength. When we say, well, I'm weak, that no, we're missing the point there. No, you're, you're dead as far as strength to take care of the issues and elements that come up in your life. You're not adequate. You, it's not that you have a little and you need more. You have none. So don't engage. Don't go there. You have none. And this is where I want to go with this on the fourth point on your study sheet. We're, we're almost always like Jacob. One foot in faith and one foot not in faith. We're, we're, sort of, we're, we're living sometimes this way like Jacob. It's by our wits. And then sometimes we get it and we're trusting God. We're sort of double-minded just like Jacob was. Um, God wants to overwhelm us. He will engineer occurrences in your life. He will cause and allow challenges to come up in your life. Not because He doesn't love you. And not because you're disobedient either. Sometimes something hard comes up and we say, what did I do wrong? Well, you may be doing everything exactly as God wants you to. And you may still find yourself in this place in which you say, what is going on? What do I do? How do I get around this, Lord? What, what is your answer? You know, it's always appropriate to say, Lord, if there's sin in my life, show me that. That's good. But it doesn't mean, conflict doesn't mean there's sin in your life. It doesn't have to mean that at all. But God intends to bring us to an end of ourself. In Genesis 32, Jesus, God the Son, takes on the form of a man to wrestle Jacob so that Jacob understands, I can't do this, and God, I give up. Well, later, God the Son comes down and he enfleshes himself in our humanity. It's not a temporary thing. It's not a theophany. The incarnation is God becoming permanently one of us. And it, it also has that same theme attached to it that Jesus came down not just to pay the price of our sins to cover over our sins. That's true, certainly. But... Jesus' death on the cross as one of us was God's way of condemning our humanity. The cross is God condemning all of humanity. So when I try to live for Christ out of my old human nature, God says, no, I, I don't do that. I don't deal with that. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Paul looks at himself and says, there's no good thing morally before God in me. And don't we find this? If I find myself feeling really humble, maybe the next thing I feel is pride about my humility. Or I'm generous to others and I compliment myself on my generosity. You know, I can have on the exterior a life that looks really spiritual, perhaps to someone religiously appropriate, 
And God can say, I can't use any of that. You lived, all of that was about you. Those were your motives. That wasn't my plan. Matthew 6, 1, be be careful of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. That's a religious, that could appear to be a very successful spiritual life. God says, if that comes from your old fallen nature, I can use none of it. And I won't use any of it. So Paul says, in the nature that we bring, we are Jacob. We are deceivers. We live by our wits. And God comes and He engineers these events in our life in which He wants us to see. It's not that we have some strength and needs more. We have no strength. It's not that we bring to God sort of our best. We bring nothing. So God wants us to empty ourselves of the thought and the notion that we can help Him in saving us or entering into the situations we find ourselves in. Those are not accidental. God causes and allows them. Because just like Jacob, He wants us to surrender. Now you know Jacob, for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp, doesn't he? Now this was important in the moment. God wins, right? The wrestling match touches the thigh and Jacob's out of sorts now. He certainly can't win the wrestling match. That's good, but for the rest of his life, Jacob limps. He can't run away from Esau now, can he? He's compromised physically. Jacob limps for the rest of his life, a reminder to trust in God. But friends, that's no different than God calling us to live what Paul talks about as a crucified life. In Jacob's case, the thigh gets put out of its socket. But a crucified life, God says, I've dealt the death blow to all that you were, all that you had, all that you brought to bear. I crucified all of it in your death with my son on the cross. We are called to live crucified lives. Our lives are meant to be marked out just like Jacob's was by recognizing our spiritual impotence. We bring no strength. We have no success before God in what we bring to the plate. It's all about Christ and what He brings. God touched Jacob's thigh, but Jesus slays us with Himself on the cross. And that's the thing I think for most of us as Christians, we don't get beyond Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me is salvation and that's a big deal. And I don't mean to minimize that. I died with Christ. That's sanctification. And most of us aren't getting beyond salvation. Sanctification comes when I realize not only did Jesus die for me, I died with Him. God has said to me, Mike, I can't use anything you've got. So I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to slay you. I'm going to kill you. But I'm going to give you a new life. And that new life is my life. And now just like Jacob, when you face something in your life that you recognize, you know what? I don't have the resources to cope with this. That's okay. Because you do what God told the Jews to do at the Red Sea. You stand and see the salvation of God. You trust in God and what He brings, not on what you have and what you bring. God means us to live crucified lives as Christians. And this is where most of us are not growing in our faith. We're trying to get better. We're trying to be better people. God doesn't make us better people. He slays us. It's a mercy killing. And then we get resurrection life in Christ. Now we are someone 
and something we weren't before. And just as Jacob goes from Jacob, supplanter to Israel, God rules. God gives us a new life, just as he did Jacob there. We could say we have a new name from that point on because we are a new person. So, when you find yourself at the Red Sea, the rock in a hard place, when you find yourself at the Jabbok River, you know it's interesting? The term Jabbok, it just means emptying. It's a river. It empties into another river. Makes sense. And it's right by the Jordan. But Jabbok emptying also refers to Jacob, doesn't it? Jacob was emptied of himself at that place, at that river, at that meeting with God. And the place that he was emptied becomes the place he sees God. He sees the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, before he has the name of the incarnation, Jesus. He sees God and Jabbok emptying becomes Peniel, God's face. I saw God at the place my own life was emptied out. So I know some of you right now, you're at Jabbok. And it's not because you've sinned. It's not because you've done something wrong. It's because you're living life and you're trying to honor God. And you say, God, what do I do? And God says, I want you to recognize that I bring you to the end of yourself here. You don't, don't work up your own clever schemes. Don't worry about that. You trust me. Don't get stronger, get weaker. Recognize that you bring nothing to bear here. You have not a little power, you have no power. But what you do have is you have resurrection life. And you have the omnipotent God of the universe who's given you his precious, magnificent promises to count on. And even should God allow whatever that current circumstance you're in to end in death, it just means you go home, your challenges and trials on the earth are over. You know what Jacob says at the end of his life, by the way, to Pharaoh? Pharaoh says, you look pretty old. How old are you? And he says, well, 130 years are the days of my sojourning, few and bitter. Few and bitter. And he had a good life. The worst that can happen is we die and go to heaven. That would be a good day. But ask yourself, and at the bottom of your study sheet, there's some questions just to think about, to ponder. How might God want to be using the things that are going on in our life today? How might He want us to see them in a new light so that we give up on running our own life and trust Him instead? That in the wrestling match, in the prayers we have with God, because of our desperate need, that is in fact when we see Christ as closely and we'll feel Him as closely and near to us as we'll ever feel Him in life on this earth. I say this from experience. I've never felt closer to God than when I feel like my life is absolutely falling apart. And we're like Jacob. We are desperate. God, I can't let you go because I need you. That's Peniel. Jabbok becomes Peniel. Lord, we thank You that You cause and allow the difficult times in our life to, to please Your plan for us, to bring us to an end of ourselves. Father, for some of us, an end of ourselves simply recognize, means recognizing our need for a Savior. That we have sins and all we have to bring to You, Lord, are our sins. And if that's the case for some here this morning, Lord, would You give them confidence to trust in Your Son for forgiveness of sins 
and eternal life, for a new life and a new nature, a new start. Father, for others of us coming to you in these difficult times is the reminder that you are sufficient. You're Jehovah Jireh. You're the God who provides for us in all of our needs. And Father, we thank you this morning for bringing us to an end of ourself and ask you to help us to lay down our life to take up the new name we have as Christ's followers, to live crucified lives, to give you ourselves in faith, Lord, to trust you in these difficult times and in the circumstances we face. Lord, we love you and commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.